0: Don't make it complicated, don't stress out it. Your diet should not provoke anxiety. If you need an app to figure out how to eat, if you need a nutrient calorie balancer to eat, you're the only species on the planet that needs that.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Living Wild podcast. Today we have a special one for all of you wildlings. This is an interview with Dr. Sean Baker. Dr. Sean Baker is a man who needs no introduction in the space that we are in. He is one of the most prominent figures for the carnivore movement or for f- health in general and fitness. He came on the ancestral mind joined us in the wild food studios and we wanted to share that with all of you so brent and colin are with him colin does most of the talking and then well of course other than dr baker so join us on this episode of someone who has been on podcasts as popular as joe rogan and as popular as the ancestral mind and now we get to share it with the living wild audience And it starts right now. The carnivore diet. You have heard us talk about it on The Ancestral Mind constantly. We always mention that it is very appropriate to eat carnivore, to live ancestrally. Today, we are going to be speaking with the man who literally wrote the book on the carnivore diet, Dr. Sean Baker is on the show today. He's the author of The Carnivore Diet. He is the founder of MeatRx.com, and you know his name. He's been at every conference. He's been on every podcast. He's been on Rogan, and now he's on ours, the second best podcast that's out there, and we are going to speak with him for the next hour and learn everything from where he started with nutrition to where he ended up and how he became part of this ancestral carnivorous community, and how dogmatic he is about it. If he is or if he isn't, we're going to find out. Grass-fed or grain-fed? How much does it matter? Let's dive in to those questions and more on this episode of the Ancestral Mind Podcast. It starts right now. All right, once again, welcome to the Ancestral Mind Podcast. I'm Brent Philbin. You know we got Colin Stuckert. Here. Hey, hey. He's hosting. But most importantly, we're here today with Dr. Sean Baker, someone who needed almost no introduction, even though we gave him one. But welcome to the show.
0: Hey, thanks, guys. I'm just looking at the screens and it's got you guys' names listed, and I'm listed as optimistic announcer, <laughs> which I think is <laughs> pretty interesting. I'm not sure yeah. where that came from, but cool. Yeah, I mean, I guess what I'm about is, you know, health and nutrition, and I've taken a, an animal-based approach, and, and I've written the book, The Carnivore Diet, and, uh, you know, I'm just continually seeing people's lives change for the better, adopting meat-based diets, which I think kind of goes counter to what well, we've been told for the last several decades, you know, certainly 50 years or so, we've been told meat is bad for us, and, you know, we've kind of taken our taken that at face, I think, and uh, we are on a plant-based diet whether we want to say so or not. I mean, if we look at the standard American diet, it's seventy percent plant and, and a yep. very small amount is actually meat. You know, most of the most of the animal sources are 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 quite honestly dairy and eggs. And so when we actually look at the meat portion, it's a tiny amount. And so we don't really know what a meat-based diet does to people, uh, based on any of the data we have. And we are seeing uh quite surprisingly that people that go on an all-meat or mostly-meat diet are, are seeing tremendous improvements in their health. So that's what I'm about. That's what I'm, I'm studying, learning, learning every day, promoting, encouraging people to at least try it. And so I've, for the good, I've seen a lot of people that have really positively uh, improved their lives to some degree, you know, incredible life transformations. And again, there's a lot of people that vehemently oppose and believe oh, yeah. what I'm doing is wrong. So right. I think there's an interesting intersection here. What, what's 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 actually going on?
2: So how did you fall into this though? Was it a health decision? Was it happenstance? Was it like I studied our ancestral past, like it was for me, and then they eat a lot of meat and they seem to do good? Or you know what led you to this?
0: Uh, well, I mean, ultimately uh, it was a combination of continuing to 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 go on a journey to see what improved my health, and then also a little bit about athletic performance. I'm a you know, a lifelong, really competitive, high-level athlete. And I was always looking to see, you know, what I could do from a training standpoint and then eventually a nutrition standpoint that worked the best. And I tried it as an, purely as a, an experiment to see what would happen mostly for athletic gain. And fortunately, it would work very well for me. So that was my kind of you know, brief background in why I did this. But I, had, you know, I had, I'm 53 now. And when I was probably 10 years ago, I was in a much worse condition, even though I was still training extremely hard and still doing quite well as an athlete. My health wasn't near as good as it is now. And uh, I went on a whole bunch of different dietary strategies and I ended up mm. with this kind of, you know, somewhat unusual meat-based approach.
2: Did you see other results in your actual health? Like, did you get leaner? Did you sleep better? Were there maybe some gut issues that kind of cleared up? Because what I'm seeing is people are like going into it for one reason, and then they're getting all these other benefits. And they're like, wow, now I almost can't go back to anything else.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had seen, you know, as an orthopedic surgeon, i dealt with musculoskeletal issues my whole life. And I had this sort of nagging, you know, the biggest sort of musculoskeletal issue I had was this right quadriceps tendonitis, which I had probably like 10 years. I think I irritated squatting, you know, 500 pounds one day and mm-hmm. thought I might have partially tore. And I remember I had my partner look at it because I actually thought I maybe partially ruptured my quad tendon and uh, you know, it was okay, but I just had this chronic pain for years and years. And anytime I'd sit for a long period of time, my knee flexed, I had pain and that never went away. And I, and I tried every trick in the book I knew as an orthopedic surgeon and it just kind of stayed with me. So I kind of accepted that was going to be my fate. And it's shingling within about, oh, I think six, eight weeks of doing this diet, it, it kind of went away. And I was like, well, that's interesting because it would come and go. And then it went away for six months and and, and now it's been three years. So that's been something I think was, was really remarkable. My sleep quality definitely improved. Um, my digestion, which I kind of just thought was normal. I didn't know any better. You know, I, yep. you know, I had a little bit of mild discomfort and, you know, that completely went to where I had no issues. I mean, it was like, it was, you know, it's kind of one of those things where you don't know you're sick. You're so used to something, yep, and yep. then when it goes away, you're like, Wow, I really was putting up with this sort of disease that I didn't know I had. And I think that's a, the, the, the problem we have a lot is we've normalized disease, and yes. so many people are sick and don't even know it, or, or not, you know, really living in a, in a condition that's ideal or optimal for them. And when they reach that, suddenly your eyes kind of open up and say, Wow, this is what it feels like to be, you know, really functioning well. I think that's yeah. and so. I, I found that you know I, I'd say joint pain, sleep, digestion were probably the the three top ones. I think mood, you know, very stable mood. I'm kind of generally just kind of calm and happy. I mean, that's kind of my default state now. I don't really go up and down mm-hmm. a lot with, unless there's some very extreme condition going on. But but I'm generally very very nice mood stability. So I mean, those things are what I notice personally.
2: So the question here, before we get into like the specific points, counterpoints, whatever, is a lot of people still are operating from this idea that, well, what about the long term, right? Are you are you gonna long term develop heart disease or this or that or whatever? And I have my own personal beliefs on that, but like even when you see someone like Chris Kresser, who's done a lot for just the a, a natural movement, a paleo, primal, and a sexual-based movement, he still even operates from that perception of like, well, we don't know yet, so we should be careful. And I don't really resonate with that. I, I kind of think that we're probably closer to the truth than not. So what's your take on the like, well you could do for a short period of time, it could eliminate some things. So you will have benefits, but what if you do for 30 years, are you going to just like drop dead from a heart attack? Or, you know, like what what what's your opinion on that?
0: Yeah, I mean, well I see certainly you can do it as an elimination diet and as a tool. And I, I think that's fine. I think a lot of people figure things out and they add things back in and mm-hmm. I'm right. certainly happy for people to do that. And but I mean, the the question of you know, am I going to die of something? I mean, I'm going to die. I mean, I, you know, True. I mean, it, it doesn't give you immortality. We just don't know. I mean, this is the bottom line. Our research in in nutrition, it cannot tell us that. Yeah. I mean, we can't do the studies that would tell us that. And the people that sort of make suggestions that this or that particular diet is going to lead to you to live longer or shorter or die of heart disease or cancer. I mean, there's no credible data by which you can say that. And so I, I just take the approach to look, I mean, you may be, you know, if, if today you're obese and diseased and tomorrow you're no longer obese and no longer diseased, that right, is right, really right. the best you can honestly do. And I think yeah. to, to suggest that we're going to, you know, somehow be at risk for cardiovascular disease based on some really weak epidemiologic studies that have yep. millions of confounders. And really, relative low risk, and based on food frequency survey questionnaires. I mean, it's ludicrous that we actually even consider that actual science. And so many people put so much give so much import to that stuff. It's just mind boggling when you actually look at the quality of evidence coming out. And this is why you know guys like Gordon Guy, who I've I've interviewed on my podcast, he's the guy who actually invented evidence based medicine. He's actually the guy who said. This is what evidence-based medicine. He did this in 1991. He wrote a paper called Evidence-Based Medicine, and he's the guy who invented it. And he basically says we have no evidence to even have nutritional guidelines because the evidence Mm. is so poor. So we should just we should just go from that. And I think you know, one, I mean, we should be talking about health span and quality of life above all. I don't care if I live to 100 if I spend the last 20 years, you know, pushing around in a wheelchair and drooling all over myself. I I don't want that. I'd rather die at 80 if that's the case. But yeah, so I, I just think we just don't have the evidence to make the claim for any diet. And I don't do that. I, I don't know if a carnivore diet is going to make people live longer or shorter. You know, I, I have my bias. and I think you're going to live a healthier life. And generally, absence disease seems to make you live longer. But I can't say that with 100% certainty or even 50% certainty. So I think if we're honest about that and say, look, all we can do is look at today versus tomorrow and versus yesterday, and then continue doing those things that make us as healthy as we can be in the, in the current time, that's really the best we can hope for.
2: Right. It's also, it puts the impetus back on the the person, you know, N equals one. Like everyone needs to be their own scientist instead of trying to rely on some guy in a lab coat somewhere around the world doing a study that's maybe funded by Coca-Cola or something like, why is that guy trying to tell you what to eat when you can literally eat something today, you can see how it affects you tomorrow, the next day, the month, whatever. So I think we need just a lot more personal responsibility when it comes to nutrition and testing, but this kind of leads me to something I saw when you and Joe Rogan we're talking, you, you went on a show and he was pretty vehement about like, well, Sean, why don't you show people your blood work? And you kind of were like, I'm not really interested in seeing my blood work. And I thought that was interesting. And Joe was kind of like, what do you mean you don't want to see your blood work? This could help solve so many things. And what I think you were saying, maybe you can clarify this. I think you were saying is most people don't know what healthy blood work is. They're just comparing it to a standard of what sick people are. So I don't think it'll really tell me anything. Like, am I accurate in that or, or, or did you kind of mean something else? Like, why would you not want to show your blood work to people and maybe show what is like health, like your results are this, at this point?
0: Yeah. It's not that I don't don't want to show my blood work. I said, Joe, I'm not sure what a healthy blood work looks like in this population. I don't think we know yet. And also, you have to understand that blood is very transient. I mean, these numbers can fluctuate mm. day to day significantly throughout the day, hour to hour significantly. So we get kind of wrapped up in this stuff. and We have to put things in clinical context. And so when I look at what I think, how we evaluate someone's health, and again, it's going to depend on your age. Like, you know, I'm in an age range where something like a coronary artery calcium scan, which I've had done, and mine was a perfect zero, is going to give me a you know a better indication of what's going on chronically with me with you know the long term decisions that my diet or lifestyle is causing and, and and something you know if i drew my cholesterol on tuesday it could be very different on thursday mm, so yep. those numbers to me are not as compelling unless you put them in clinical context and so there's a lot of things you can measure i think the imaging stuff the, the cmt carotid intermediate thickness testing the coronary artery calcium scans You know, visceral body fat, you know, VO2 function, VO2 max, lean body mass function. Those things to me are more indicative of what's going on with your health rather than, you know, a blood test, which just merely indicates what's traveling in the blood at that particular second when you, when you sampled it. The reason Mm -hmm. we do blood tests is because it's easy to do. I mean, you would be better off, you know, imaging is pretty good. uh, Functional assessment is good. You could do biopsies on tissues. If you really want to know what's going on in the tissue, not just the blood, that's difficult because it's painful and it's expensive and it's hard to do. And no, no one has decided to have the big needle stuck in their kidney or something like that. So it's, you know, this, this stuff, this infatuation with blood work is, you know, partly driven by quite honestly, these companies that, that have testing. I mean, they want you to mm. test yourself because they make money on this stuff. And so we we now have access to more blood tests than at any time in history. I mean, you can mm-hmm. literally go, depending on what state you you live in go to one of these you know lab companies and get $50,000 worth of blood work I and mean, you you could literally spend that much on blood work and you would get a whole batch of you know thousands of tests most of which you wouldn't know what 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 they'd mean most of which the doctors don't even know what it means mm. most of which hasn't been validated in a large population for long enough to make any any sense as to what this means over the long term other than some again really really weak associational data so I don't Again, in an acute situation, you know, if somebody comes in and they're 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 in a trauma situation and their hematocrit is you know super low, hey man, they're bleeding to death. You got to do mm. something. But I mean, yeah. this chronic disease stuff, we're still arguing I mean, even with even among the lipidologists who we've been studying cholesterol for now hundred plus years, and we're still trying to figure out what subfraction are we need is is the important one? Is it LPA little one LP little A? Is it Oxidized or glycated cholesterol? Is it the particle count? Is it the apo B, you know, subfraction? I mean, all these things we're still debating about. So I, I just, again, I'm I'm kind of big picture type of guy, and I try to I try to say, you know, what you know, what what actually matters to you and me. I, if I were to tell you, hey, guess what, man, your LDL is perfect, but you felt like garbage. I mean, yeah, that,
2: exactly. Yeah, would
0: that would that make much difference? Or if I said you know, if I if I were to if we were to test all three of us and do a hundred lab tests, I guarantee absolutely all of us all of us, no matter what our health state was, are gonna have numbers that are outside of range. And we've got to remember those normal ranges were developed on people eating a standard American diet. So yeah, I mean, just there's all kinds of caveats to this stuff.
1: Anecdotally, right? this exact same thing. I've been t- I just recently had blood work. The blood work was done and they said you're healthy. I am an overweight, clearly unhealthy individual. <laughs> I'm getting better. I mean, you I've been better. losing weight, so I understand why my blood work might be in a normal range right now. Yeah, and I've been I've been following a very cl- cl- not carnivore, but very keto diet at the moment. But the idea that somebody told me I'm healthy is insane. Yeah. I, nobody should ever be telling me that.
0: <laughs> I mean, I I, I mean. I can't tell. I mean, from am just looking at your head, but, um, you know, but I mean, that is, uh, you know, we as physicians have kind of lost the plot a little bit, you know, and mm. it's part of it has to do with the healthcare system where you've got 10 to 15 minutes to see a patient make assessments and you got to run through these labs and there's right. all kinds of checks you got to do to, to sort of make the, the hospital administrative staff happy. And quite honestly, the, 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 the guidelines, which are in part developed by pharmaceutical companies. Yep. So, yeah I mean it's it's a it's a shame we just can't step back and actually talk to the patient, listen to the patient and actually see what's going on and I think we would have a very different way of practicing medicine if we if we we asked the patients what was important to them, and we don't do that anymore we 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 kind of tell the patients what we think is important for you and rather than the other way around and and I think that's a shame,
2: yeah so. The the thing that people come back to with something like meat is even if they maybe buy into the fact that a lot of the research done in the sixties and seventies and eighties is, is not that great. And they're opening up to eating more animal products. Well, you see a lot in the carnivore community and I'm not sure what your actual recommendations are, but some recommend just meat, nothing else. Some are even going as far as saying like plants are toxic. And so there's just a million different rabbit holes. What is your opinion on like the, all the nutrient deficiency things? Like some people talk about vitamin C, this, that my personal opinion is like nose to tail is probably important, but like we're seeing people that even just eating muscle meat, they're just doing so much better because they're not eating all the other toxic foods. So what's your stance on all that?
0: Yeah. And so, you know, obviously I wrote a book called the carnivore diet. So I, I, I guess it gives myself a little leeway to make definitions as I see fit, <laughs> right. um, you know, and I, I consider a, a carnivore diet, a diet in which animal products are the, the source of nutrition, you know, and then and basically what we do with plants is, we either completely eliminate them if needed or we limit them to the degree that we need to, to, you know, have good health. And I think yeah. that's and, and, and I think the caveats are there. It's not an ideology you limit as necessary and the outcome is health. And I think that's how I look at this. And I think for many people, that looks like a 100 percent animal based diet, you know, and, and we have different things you can you can include in there, and some people are have a little more room for a little more flexibility. I think that's perfectly fine. I don't think we should sort of kick these people out of the club. I think it's important, and it's important to know. And, and fortunately, we've got some research coming up uh, that's going kind to of maybe help to to kind of continue to, to to teach us on this stuff. But I mean, as far as you know, nutrient deficiencies. I mean, you know, so at the end of the day, we don't see people getting sick. I mean, regardless if they eat nose to tail or do what I do, which is you know I don't eat generally organ meats. And I mean, I know uh, there's some people that, that have different opinions on that, but I can tell you, I've surveyed, you know, 10,000 plus people on this carnivore diet and asked them, what do you eat in various ways? And I asked them about the organ consumption, and only about 15% are regularly eating organs to, to a point where you could mm-hmm. say their nutrition needs might be made, being met. And it's honestly, you know, if we look at vitamin C in particular, even if you ate nose to tail, you know, we, we took a whole cow and we we, we, we we chopped it up into this very part, or we ground the whole cow up and made a giant hamburger patty, right. including all the organs. You would not hit your RDA for vitamin C. You probably wouldn't even hit 20% of the RDA for vitamin C. And so there has to be something going on and a compensatory mechanism that is allowing people like myself and others and, and Inuit, you know, and, and we we got guys like Vilmar Stefansson who spent a dozen years with the Inuit saying, hey, man, we just threw the organs away, threw into the dogs. And I mean, there's controversy wow. about that, but that was occurring. And these people were not dying. They were not getting deficiencies. And I, so I think we do have these compensatory things, some of which have been described, you know, competition between glucose and vitamin C and certain transporters, you know, whether carnitine is uh, being, you know, ingested through meat and, and taking some of the pressure off there. The fact that vitamin C is an oxidant, antioxidant, and we get upregulation of our natural antioxidants by going low carb anyway. And so there's a lot of reasons why we think maybe vitamin C requirements actually decrease on this diet. I mean, that's controversial. Some people agree, some people don't. But again, at the end of the day, we have to look at the results people are getting. There are people who have been doing this diet for 20 plus years, 10 years, just eating basically steaks and they're Mm. fine. And so you can't just throw that data out there and say, these people are lying or they're freaks because it's happening over and over again. And so, you know, if we go back and look at, like, here's an interesting example. We've known this since the 1800s. So some, there's so thiamine is a you know essential vitamin. And and there, if you don't have thiamine, enough thiamine in your body, you'll get something called beriberi, which can cause, there's either wet or dry beriberi. One of them will cause cardiovascular complications and one will call them, cause neurological complications. And so they looked at animals back, you know, way back when, and they saw that animals on a low-carbohydrate diet could have very low levels of thiamine and they would not get disease. Mm. Conversely, they could have animals on a high-carb diet, and even though their thiamine levels were even higher, they would get the same, they would get the disease. And so it shows you even within populations, even at different levels in the body, the clinical manifestation of disease occurs. We see it with the Inuit. We saw Inuit that would have low vitamin D because they lived up you know, in the really cold, cold, you know, lack of sunlight, right? Yeah. Lack of sunlight. So they'd come in with low vitamin D. And so when low vitamin D is low enough, people will get rickets. They saw that there was two populations. One of the population of inuit were were exposed to flour and sugar and canned goods. Yep. And there was another population that wasn't. They both had the same low level of vitamin D. Guess which one got the rickets? Yep. The (laughs) The ones that had the flour and the sugar and all the other crap. So again, this shows you that maybe we have this, differential requirement for nutrients based on what our baseline diet is. And I think we see the same thing with magnesium and I see I see the same thing with, again, vitamin D and all these other things. So it's interesting. And I think what we do, what we what the easy thing to do is to, to paint the broad brush. We can see this with cholesterol. Most Americans are metabolically you know, unhealthy. They yep. have insulin dysregulation, they have chronic inflammation. And if you put those people in a situation where they have elevated cholesterol, then there probably are at risk for cardiovascular disease and the easy job is for a doctor is to say well you know most of you guys are that like that anyway i'm just going to give you your pill here's your statin lower your cholesterol yep. or whatever but that's being lazy if, if you have doctors that aren't lazy and if we look at you know the entire package the entire environment the entire physiological milieu and we say wait a minute we have some people that have all these things going on where cholesterol is an issue. But we also have this now this emerging subset of people that are on low carb diets, on carnivore diets, keto diets, where all of these other markers have normalized. They're lean. They don't have visceral fat. They don't have inflammation. Uh, They have very nice triglyceride HDL ratios. They have very low insulin. Their glucose stability is really good. Are they the same subset of people as the standard American diet? And I would posit that no they're not and i think we need to look at that and in fact we are seeing people now and again this is yet to be written up but it's going to be written up soon with reversal of coronary artery calcium scans regression of cimt scores despite having higher cholesterol and so i think we're learning a lot with this population it's nice to see these outliers and say wait a minute let's let's really challenge the paradigm here and see what these people are doing. And I think we're getting a big, much different answer than we thought when we when we have this mixed approach where we just, you know, we don't know what's going on actually.
2: Yeah. And what, what it seems is that with all nutrition, medical, whatever recommendations, we're trying to just say, this is good. This is bad, right? Like vitamin C more, good, better, fine. But the fact is the human being is a, com- the most complex organism uh, basically there is. Right. And we don't know how much, much of it works, but we do know that there are a million variables that affect our health. So it's like, maybe we don't need as much vitamin C if we have a low carb or a meat based diet. Maybe when we didn't have meat available, we'd be eating more plants and maybe the vitamin C would be more important then, or something. Right. So I think part of the problem is just trying to simplify things. And of course there's the marketing aspect and the financial aspect to all this. Right. Um, but it is pretty fascinating that people even some I'm even thinking about just like people can literally eat steak for 20 years and just do fine. Like that is that is pretty fascinating to me, actually. Uh, but so I guess time will, will tell. But but actually, time has already told like you use the example of was it Steffeson or Steffeson who lived with the Inuit and wrote the book, The Fat of the Land or whatever, where he, he even had somebody follow him for a year. He had uh, I think it was a scientist or a writer or someone where they followed him for a year. And all he did was eat meat and all of his numbers at the end. He like, he wanted to prove it to Royal society or whoever it was who doubted him because they thought he was lying. And he's like, I literally eat just meat and you can track me for the entire year. Every single meal I eat, I'm going to eat meat. And he did just fine and great. But again, this was a long time ago. So no one really picked up what he was doing. Right. In fact, he's having a little bit more of a resurgence, which is awesome. But, um, I think it's pretty fascinating that we do actually have a good amount of data. So this, this kind of leads me to research. Like we have a lot of data. And in the beginning of the show, you mentioned, we don't have a lot of research. Well, Like, I think they're kind of different. We have millions of data points. We have at this point, millions of people that are doing these things and seeing these different results, but maybe we don't have research that's been done and peer reviewed and published that would suggest or support these ideas. So where do we draw a line to where, like, again, n is one, like you should be able to do these things for yourself and and figure out a lot about your health for yourself instead of trying to rely on the establishments or the medical establishment or whatever, right? There's a question in there somewhere. I don't remember the question, yeah, was- <laughs> but there's a question in there. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, I, I think that, you know, certainly the concept of doing your own, you know, re- homework on yourself is, is I mean, very powerful. I mean, it doesn't matter what study is done out there. I mean, at the end of the day, what counts, what happens to you is what you care about. And, you know, you can do some things that are really stupid and you'll, I mean, often you'll find out, you know, that, that, that that's a wrong decision. And there's people that potentially harm themselves doing that. But I think if you, you know, do this in a very sort of, logical and objective manner, you can make a lot of uh, good decisions and you can, you can find out a lot about you, but as far as the data is out there. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of convergence in what we're seeing with all these N equals one. And I, I'd started something called N equals many a few years ago. And we, we, you know, I got a hundred people to do a carnivore diet for 90 days and we tracked a whole bunch of stuff. And I mean, the end result was pretty much everybody either didn't get worse or got better by a significant yeah. amounts when we, everything we asked them the measure and we, tracked their weight loss and it was about 30 pounds on average. And we, you know, we, we followed their, you know, their heart rate went down by about eight points and they lost about, I don't know, three or four inches off their waist. And their, you know, we checked their bowel movements and they had bowel movements about once a day. And so all, you know, what we could get for free because we didn't have any funding for this is all voluntary, but we're now seeing, like I said, there, there is going to be a large study done out of Harvard coming up this in the next few months Looking at probably we'll probably have thousands of people in that study would, would be my my guess. So we're going to see some of this peer review stuff is going to make appearance in a peer reviewed uh, journal. And you're talking about Stefanson. Yeah, I think there were six studies that came out of that 1928 uh, Bellevue Hospital study with with uh, Vilmar Stefanson and, and Carson Anderson, where they did two guys did it for a year. And yeah, they were oh, fine. that's right,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. So
0: nothing nothing bad happened to them. You know, they were completely fine. And you know, we've got historical accounts. And you, if you think about the plausibility of, you know, just people living up in the polar regions, circumpolar regions, I mean, they don't really have much choice for variety. I mean, you don't, you can't go to the, you know, can't go to to, to the grocery store, Whole Foods and pick up some mangoes when you're living, right. you know, up at the North Pole. I mean, and and, and and we have to remember also that as Homo sapiens evolve, if, if, you know, if, you know, to bring it to an evolutionary model, I mean, Homo sapiens have been around. I think we think, I think we're now at about three hundred thousand years when we think they start first start, first started coming out. Most of that time was ice age. I mean, they were inter, they were interspersed inter, warm periods, but mostly it was ice age. And yeah. we are in a unique warm period right now. I mean, we could see in a thousand years another ice age evolve. You know, I know there's a the climate change stuff going on, but I mean, this, this has been the natural cycle for the Earth for four point five billion years or whatever it's been. I mean, so about three million years ago, we we took a really cold turn. And I think that's what drove primate evolution towards the, the hominid line. Is you know we ran out of fruits and vegetables. I mean the the, the, the landscape changed to more of a savanna type of thing. Yes, so,
2: yeah. Forest forest receded, and so then we right. came out of trees basically. The and the we road. had to find food, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean there were there were there were a couple attempts. You know, Australopithecus boisei and robustus who tried the plant based diet and they went extinct because they just couldn't compete anymore. And the ones that learned how to hunt and scavenge were the ones that. Turned it to yep. us. I mean, that's yep. kind of what happened there, and so you know. But this variety, this belief in this balanced diet, this get your five fruits or you know a, a day. I mean, that was not really possible for most humans and hominids through most of our existence. I mean, we couldn't do that. I mean, you know, like this plant-based. If plants are essential, I, I want you to tell me what what the name of that plant is, where it grows in every aspect of the yeah, world right. in all seasons, and you can't do that. The only thing you can say that's everywhere. Are animals, I mean, and we've eaten every single animal on the planet. I mean, there's not an animal on the planet I don't think humans have eaten. Yep. You know, you can't <laughs> say that for plants because most of the plants will kill us. I mean, you can't go outside and just randomly graze on leaves and bushes. I mean, you'll die. I mean, yep. that's clear. There's only a very small, small percentage of plants out there that we have have sort of, cultivated enough to, to where we we don't get injured. Now, fruit may be a little bit of an exception to that, but even a lot of fruits aren't designed for human. There are a lot of fruits out there that certain animals can eat that humans can't, and you will die. I mean, we all know about the poison berries, right? Mm-hmm. When you're a kid, don't eat that berry, and that's still a fruit. So even the even the minority of fruits that were naturally evolving were not made for humans. And so, um, yeah, I mean, this makes sense. I mean, there's obviously radio, radio isotopic data coming out of Europe and Africa and Asia showing when we look at, look at the collagen signatures on nitrogen and carbon, what humans were eating, and it's very much meat-based, very carnivorous. Yeah,
2: Yeah. so moving to something controversial, though, what about grass-fed? Because that, within the carnivore community, is kind of a thing. You have, like, on the left, it's got to be grass-fed. It's got to be the best. It's got to be the highest quality. And then you have on the right side where it's like, well, just eat steak, and if you have to, maybe just get, like, a burger patty.
0: I mean, that's a great question. And so I think one of the things that I... Don't like to see you know if I want to if I use the the, the analogy of the sort of the vegan sort of ideology they 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 tend to mix everything into their belief that you know no animal is going to suffer and therefore we're gonna we're gonna oh, yeah. conflate the science yep. and skew the science to, to to support our ideology right this is again observation what people have been doing and I've and again I've asked all these people what do they eat? how many you eat grass fed how much do you eat grain fed depends on where you live because. In some places, grass fed is all they have. You know, if you go to go to certain countries, they don't grain fed. In the U.S., mm-hmm. they do, and it's getting more prevalent in other countries now. But the the results that I've seen doesn't seem to matter much. You know, now certainly there are individual cases where they say I do better on a on a grass finished product, and conversely, there are actually people that say I do better on a grass finished product, maybe because there's a higher fat content mm-hmm. or whatever reason. So. When we look at the numbers, like people talk about the omega-6 to omega-3 ratios, there's really not much of any of that in meat anyway. There's a tiny, tiny amount of omega-3 in meat regardless. Omega-6 is still a tiny, tiny amount. Remember, omega-6 is still essential. We still have to have omega-6. The problem is we're we're, we're inhaling all the seed oil from all the processed food we're eating. We're probably eating far too much of that. So while we can say that there clearly is a little bit more conjugated linoleic like acid, vitamin E, vitamin A, zinc, omega-3 in grass-finished beef, Is it enough to make a huge difference in the majority of the people? And in my experiences, it really isn't. You know, and and that's why I don't tell people you must do it this way. Now, having said that, I think from an environmental standpoint, um, there are very compelling reasons that we should promote regeneratively raised agriculture. I think that is something we should support. I wholeheartedly do that. I have, you know, I interview all kinds of regenerative agriculture people on my podcast. I'm, I'm completely in favor of that. But to tell somebody that may be struggling financially that the only way you can be successful on this diet is you got to spend 20 bucks a pound on, you know, grass finished yeah. meat is a disservice. It really is. And it, and it dissuades a lot of people. And the same thing with saying you must eat, you know, organ meats, because also that doesn't seem to be the case. Again, it, this is something where I say this is where you start. Most people are fine here. If you want to refine it a different way, then then, then those are things you can do. And I think that's, uh, you know, my goal, you know, my personal goal is to have as many people get healthy as possible and not just keep it to a select few people that have lots of money. And, you know, these rich people that want to do longevity stuff and biohack and and, and, and eke out an extra two years of life. I think we have such a huge population of people that are just lost, that are just sick. And I mean they're barely making ends meet. And to tell these people, you know, you've got to spend this much money on your nutrition when you know you can't do it, they're just gonna end up keeping the chip, cheap potato chips and the in the process, the highly processed, you know, human pet food that we're feeding them right now. <laughs> human and, pet food,
2: and, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what it yeah. is. It really is. Yeah. And and, no, it really and, is. And, and and
0: so that's my my position on this. And you know, if we get randomized control trials, which we may that show that clearly there's a difference for condition X or condition Y, then I'm certainly going to, to tell people that that's what we know. But until we know that, I hate to sit there and, and say, I believe we should we, we should go to regenerative agriculture. Therefore, I'm going to tell everybody the only way you can do this diet successfully is to eat that way, which, which would be disingenuous on my part. And so Yeah.
2: And also, we had a farmer on, Lauren Stein. She uh, does cows, I think, and sheep. And she brought something to my attention that I hadn't really thought about Cause I've been pretty obsessed about grass fed for a while now, but most cattle eat grass most of their lives. I mean, like that's what they live on. And even the ones that are maybe grain finished or that go to a feed lot, they're not there usually for a long period of time. Um, now, obviously, don't quote me on that. There might be different operations doing things, but for the most part, cattle still primarily eat grass, and they might get fattened up on grains for like three months or whatever, right? Which might have a negligible effect on the final omega balance or their exposure to antibiotics or whatever. So, I think at the end of the day, it's like if people are eating Twinkies, right, and they can start eating just steak or, or Twinkie mentioned beef.
1: on this podcast in two days. It's like
2: going on? But it's like that. That is going to have a such a profoundly huge effect on their on their health. That's where they should really start and focus on. And I think we just need to keep it open to people as much as possible until they can, like you said, refine it and maybe evolve into something else later on.
0: Yeah, I mean you're correct. I mean I I was just on a ranch. I was just I was up in Nebraska giving a lecture, keto summit lecture, and I was at the certified Piedmontese guys' ranch. You know, standing out in the snow with their cows and i mean yeah i mean most cattle i mean all cattle essentially with very very exception spend the majority of their life grazing in a pasture yeah um and then a percentage of them in the united states most of them do get finished on grain but that is a small part of their life i mean there you know we have so we have 95 million cattle in the country right now at any one given time about 14 million of them are in a feedlot Mm -hmm. so that again most of the cows on you know in the united states are grazing in a, in a field i mean this is why you see cows out there in a very small percentage of the time they're in these feedlots and yes it does you know it does affect their omega-6 ratio omega-3 ratio with what they're finishing is it enough to make a difference in human health you know i haven't seen it in fact there's some people i'm aware of. some people that have actually tested their omega-6 omega-3 ratios and the difference has been negligible you know mm-hmm. th- th- you know throw a piece of fish in there and it makes a huge difference. So if you're oh, really right. worried yep. about that aspect, just throw a piece of fish in there. Yep. And, that, and that's particularly fine. And the same thing with, uh, you know, the whether they get a, get a hormone implant. You know, yes, you see a little bit higher amount of hormone in that beef. But the amount is so infinitesimally small. It's like, you know, it's like five nanograms per three ounces in, in, a, in a regular cow that doesn't get hormones. And that goes to like seven nanograms. In three ounces and you compare that to you know even i think like an an a has like 94 mm-hmm. you know nanograms so if you're going to make the argument that you don't want to eat cows that have been fed you know given an implant for hormones and you should never eat an egg because you know mm-hmm. an egg has 10 times as much as that does so it's 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 you know it's it's people getting really hung up on these minuscule differences right. and like you said there's somebody out there you know, sort of saying, well, I only grass fed, you know, or, or I'm eating Twinkies, but I think grass fed is better. And I'm just like, yeah. you know, just really, you gotta, you gotta put it in big perspective and, right. and, and really look at the major differences here. And so I, I don't get too excited about that. But again, at the same time, when we're talking about human health versus talking about environment and maybe ethics, I think there's some different Right. Those are, are d- definitely different,
2: I- separate issues for yeah. sure. And speaking of egg yolks and ethics, uh, cause it seems to be, there's a lot more issues in our factory farm food when it comes to pork and chicken. So where do, where do pork and chicken fit into a carnivore diet? Do they? And if they don't, why don't they fit into a carnivore diet?
0: Well, I mean, certainly we have to look at, you know, I mean, we have to look at parts of the world. I mean, if you're in Asia, I mean, pork is going to be a much you know bigger part of the part of the diet than they are in the U S in the U S cattle, you know, where we have a very nice environment grasslands to, to raise a lot of cows. And, uh, I personally don't eat much pork. I, I really have it. I don't eat. I, I eat a fair number of eggs. What, you know, I don't eat much chicken at all. And I think, yeah, I mean, ethically, when we look at it, you know, we see battery farm chicken operations where they're stuck in cages. I don't necessarily think that's a particularly good thing. I mean, my goal—I don't eat because of animal ethics. I mean, I'm eating for human nutrition, but at the mm-hmm. same time, I'm not going to totally ignore that stuff. Right. But you know, when you look at when we look at cattle in particular, and I, you know, again, I eat mostly beef. Uh, and I've been on feedlots, and I've been around cows, and I know even the ranchers themselves say we don't want to see the chickenization of cattle. So they are aware of the, the differences. Right. And so when we're talking about these different animals, when you say factory farming, you know it's very different from a cow from a chicken. And I think we have to realize that. And and yes, I mean the way that the, the chickens and pigs are fattened up is different than the way cows are. And you probably, if you're worried about omega six, you're gonna you're gonna find more of that in the in the poultry, in the, in the, in the, in the uh, pork products. Yeah. So that is a difference there. Is that enough to tip the difference? Again, I don't know for sure. You know, Maybe it is, but like I said, there, there is room for that. diet. I mean, really any animal product is fine in the diet, whether it's fish, seafood, cow, pig, goat, mm-hmm. salamander, you know, whatever <laughs> monkey, you know, but I mean, what's real, what's practical and real is going to be these, these handful of foods that we all have, a- have access to. And then what you, what you're actually going to eat. This is one thing I say often, you know, the nutritional value of food you don't like is essentially zero. Yep. If you don't like it, you're not going to eat it. And the same thing with any diet. I mean, if we look at what causes people to fail on the diet, there's really two things in my mind. One, if you're chronically hungry, and two, you don't like the food. So if I tell you you got to eat something you don't like, and for some people that's organ meat, then they're just not going to do it. I mean, yep. it's, they're not going to sit. I'm not going to sit down there and sit down a, a bowl of food that I don't like. I mean, I, I don't sit there. And I've eaten a lot of steaks in the last three years. I've probably had thousands of steaks. I don't sit there in front of a steak saying, "Oh my gosh, I hate eating the steak." I know, right? <laughs> I, I enjoy <laughs> yeah. it pretty much. I had two ribeyes for breakfast. I enjoyed them very much. And so, I mean, this is it. I'm on a diet that I I like. I can consistently do it and sustain it. And and more importantly, just as importantly, I'm not hungry. I mean, I eat to satiety mm-hmm. and I'm good. And the nice thing about it is, and there's a lot of reasons, maybe it's the protein, thermic effect of protein, the satiety, you know, the satiety effect. Um, there's some other things that are probably happening cellularly, which make it a very sustainable diet and, and allows you to, I think, reach pretty healthy body composition for most people.
2: So as far as red versus like white meat goes, it seems like a lot, a lot in the carnivore community are always focused on the red meat. I mean, obviously red's usually more nutrition, but is, is that just purely because there's more nutrition there? Or is it also something to do with like the issues you find in pork and chicken, like pork, pork and chicken, then when it's factory farmed and fed all the things it's fed, the omega-6s are crazy. But again, we don't know if that's the only thing, but even if you take that away, it's just like lean protein. There's almost no fat. Like there's probably less, less calories. It's not, it's not as tasty. That's for sure. But are there other variables there between kind of the red meat versus everything else?
0: Yeah, I mean, certainly, I mean, yeah, you know, uh, beef is going to be higher in, in certain B vitamins, zinc, iron, and things like that. And so I think there's actually more nutrition, just to say that fat is important. You know, there you can, a lot of people that eat chicken, they'll eat like the chicken thighs. Uh, pork can be very fatty. I mean, certainly there's bacon and pork belly, and there's fatty cuts of pork. So people can do that. Same thing, lamb in particular is an excellent cut of meat that most people don't eat in the U.S. just because it's not popular. But I think it comes down to more, really, when we go back ancestrally, you know, if you think about our evolution as, as humans, I mean, what technology did we have for most of it was just spear. You know, we didn't have ranged weapons until quite later, maybe about 80,000 years ago. That's when that perhaps developed. But well, most of the time, if we, if we consider, you know, Homo erectus, you know, and those guys humans, which we do, you know, and they're not Homo sapiens. But right. we had spear technology. And if you think about it, I've got a spear. And I've got choices of what I can hunt. There are these big, slow-moving animals that don't really run away, and there's birds that are pretty damn hard to kill with a spear. I mean, yep. I, you know, you can see Rocky in the Rocky scene trying to chase his chicken around, and trying <laughs> yeah. to—it's not easy. And you're not going to get much food anyway. I mean, you know, how much work would you have to do to spear a bunch of birds versus, you know, just throwing a big, uh, you know, big spear in his big mammoth belly? Especially in groups too, hunting in groups, right, you yeah. take down a big animal super easy. Right. There was no difficulty whatsoever yeah. in humans. Uh, killing these mammoths, and they were everywhere. We had huge, vast amounts of mammoths. So, I mean, just from a st- from a strategy, I think that's what we did. That's how we evolved. That's how we got the most nutrition. And so, I think we still carry some of that forward. And that's why a ribeye steak versus a, you know a skinny chicken breast, one's going to f- seem more satisfying to, to you than the other. And I think it is. There is a lot of evidence that we were hunting, seeking out fat because protein. You know, in the animal world, protein is pretty easy. I mean, if you're eating animals, you're you're not going to have a hard time hitting your right. protein requirements. But getting that fat requirement requires some specialized, you know, actual effort in in seeking out certain animals. And that's why we cracked the bones to get marrow. That's why we ate the brains. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, some people conflate, you know, that we were going after the organs, but I think we were going after the fat, the internal fat, particularly as we got to leaner and leaner animals. Like when we see like a lion kill a zebra, zebras are all lean protein. The only place the fat is, yeah. yeah, the only place the fat is found is in that, that fat that surrounds the organs, whether it's the pericardiac, the perinephric, the 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 omental fat around the intestines, that's why we're doing this. That's why we see this organ seeking, but it's mostly fat seeking behavior because mm. we have to get this. We have to get this fat in, and I think humans do the same thing. Yeah. Also, fat tastes delicious to us. Right. I mean, yeah. There's yeah. a reason and for that. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> there's a reason. Now, some people would disagree. There's some people that have been trained to hate fat, and I think we've got yeah. this sort of we've got this anxiety and this you know, uh, mental health disorder, which is fat phobia. But uh, yeah, but we are, it's absolutely fat is an important part of the human. It's essential. I mean, we look at the essential human requirements, it's amino acids, essential fats, vitamins, and minerals. There are no essential carbohydrates or no essential phytonutrients. That's all marketing. You know, we can use carbohydrates as an energy source and certainly there's advantages. And I think for certain athletes, it comes into place, but to say what the essential human requirements are, we get them from animals and we've done that forever. In fact, if we look at all animal species that have ever existed on the planet, something like 90% of them have selected the carnivore method for acquiring nutrition. Even the very first animals 800 million years ago, that's what they did. These larger cell organisms would eat single cellular, single mm-hmm. cell organism. And that was a strategy. And the, the ability to be herbivorous was a later development that, that, it, that was a specialization. So it's, it requires much more specialized adaptations to, to, to try to derive nutrients from plant sources because it's just less efficient yeah it it, it just is
2: and there's a lot of plants have defense mechanisms they they're very good chemists you know they build actual pesticides and toxins into the plants themselves like can you speak on that for a little bit because that's something that really started to change in my mind a little bit when i when i saw the study brian from saping.org shared with me it was he studied the load of pesticides and the typical American diet, people that, you know, maybe they eat vegetables and fruits here and there, whatever. And he found that 99% of the pesticides that we consume come from the plants themselves and not what humans are spraying on them. And that was just like mind blowing to me when I, when I started
0: thinking about that. Yeah, that's Bruce, that's Bruce Ames study from 1990. You know, he's, he's a famous toxicologist and yeah, I mean, he basically said, look, people are worried about pesticides. Well, let's study what what people are ingesting as far as pesticides. And yeah, the, the, most of the pesticides we consume are made by the plants themselves, and they're mm-hmm. in common fruits and vegetables we eat every day. And you know, interestingly enough, I think of the fifty-two that they studied, twenty-seven of them were carcinogenic in animals. You know, we regularly mm-hmm. eat them. And you know, if that would if that had been meat, we'd have headlines all over the world screaming about right. how, you oh, know, it's awful. Don't you know? Like, I think it's I think it's cabbage that has something like forty-five carcinogens within it, and we don't mm-hmm. hear about that stuff just because we don't have some of the ideology behind it and we don't have some of the epidemiology and so yeah, it's not to totally. suggest you're going to get cancer from eating a vegetable but at the same time the level of evidence is about the same if you exclude the the, the silly epidemiology and so yeah i mean absolutely there are compounds in, in plants i mean you know poison ivy for example you know you get poison ivy on your arm it causes a horrible rash you go out in your backyard and start randomly munching stuff you are going to get sick and maybe right. die and yep. we have a lot of those compounds that we found, the ones that don't make us sick. sick. I mean, I, I just kind of wonder, you know, 300,000 years ago, the guys that were testing the plants. I mean, who got, who got picked to be the plant tester, you know? <laughs> you know it's your turn today, you know, Eric. And, uh, you know, maybe you die, maybe you don't. Or, you know, you kind of eat just a tiny amount and see how sick it makes you. And you find ones that don't make you quite as sick. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, we've, we've bred these things down. You know, we've bred, we bred out some of the toxic. You know, this is interesting. So this is something that's kind of disturbing. So, you know, cotton, We can't humans can't eat cotton, right? We don't, we, we don't typically eat cotton. But guess what? F, uh, USDA just approved cotton for human consumption. And the reason for this is that there's a substance in there called gossipol, which gossipol is tox, toxic to humans and other animals. Well, they figured out how to GMO breed out the gossipol. So now they take they, Now they can take the cotton and they can grind up the seeds and make like a paste and they're going to be putting it in processed food. They're going to make a paste like hummus. And in about five years, we'll be eating cotton because it's cheap. And, you know, this is where, this is what we've done. Yeah. <laughs> and they can turn it going. into a product. They can profit right, off of it. Right. Yep. Exactly. It's norm- Right now, you know, this cotton seed is is basically industrial garbage. And guess what? You know, we can modify it a little bit and feed it to pigs and feed it to humans and this is what we keep doing. And it's, you know, this is a human pet food paradigm that I'm hoping we can, you know, push back hard enough against and, and prevent from, uh, you know, taking over. Because I, you know, I've got some, yeah. I've got children and I don't know if you guys do, but I mean, this is something that the our kids are going to be faced with. Yes. And right now in the schools, they are being literally brainwashed to say that animals are bad, they're ruining the planet and we need to start eating, you know, the, 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 we just need to eat the pet food. Just just, just resign to eat the pet food.
1: Golden yeah. Globes out there just pushing that for whatever reason. They're like, we're, we're vegan this year. Like what? Well, the, the perception
2: is that it's somehow better for the planet, but it's not. I mean, and the idea that you eat some bread and the, the, the field that was plowed is just, oh, well, it's just a grain that's dying, right? But you go behind a tractor and you can find literally thousands of snakes, frogs, field mice, like Lots of things die to produce plants. That's what people don't understand. Like it's all part of an ecosystem. There's almost nothing that a human can do to live on a daily basis where something does not kill to or die to allow that to happen. Right. So like we just need more education awareness around the reality of humans are the top of the food chain, and as a result, a lot of things below the bottom of the food chain are going to die at some point to allow us to be there. You know. So I think the ethics and the morality of that is is a huge topic with lots of different rabbit holes. Um. But like, what what do you kind of recommend people that maybe they think that meat is still a not that great for the environment. You know, like how do you kind of broach that subject with people? I mean, you're more focused on, on health and just letting people get, get healthy, which I think should be the priority, but some people do actually, they, they would almost forego their health if they thought it was going to save the planet. Like some people do think like that, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've delved into this topic extensively. I've talked to experts from all around the world and done extensive reading. And we've got a huge library of articles I've got a website called meterx.com where you can look at this stuff. But you know, if we truly, truly want to look at it from an ethical and an environmental standpoint, then we would get behind a regenerative, solid agricultural system. Yeah. I know there's people that are naysayers based on a couple studies that were done, but those studies were done one by a guy who's funded by Loma Linda University. Uh, Loma Linda is, you know, a vegan vegetarian religion basically, and another guy was a guy that did a study at Harvard, which is not really a uh, a range science. They're not They're not an agricultural school, and the guy right. has no uh, sort of real uh, knowledge behind that. And basically, they made the same mistake. They they used sort of common, typical pasturing methods uh, and, and not looking at the productivity increases that you can do. And so there's a lot more science out there now. I mean, I know maybe Paul Saladino talked about the White Oaks Pasture Study, which was done, which showed actually, you know, uh, sequestering, a uh, net sequestering of carbon into the ground. So we can actually... Yep use animals in a in a very intense but well managed you know grazing situation where we can actually not only cause less harm to the planet but actually reverse some of the harm that's being done and that is very well doable and even if we had a hybrid system where these cows that are cow calf operations or stocker operations before they go to the feedlot are grazed that way that still would be a net positive for the environment so i mean there's a lot we can do you know besides just Nobody eat meat. That's probably the worst situation because you know that that will continue this degenerative agriculture system where we're destroying the uh, destroying the soil, uh, and once our soil goes away, we have we're going to have a very difficult time feeding people. So yep. I mean, there's a lot of ways to broach that. Uh, you know, if you wanted to be the most ethical, I mean, you know, these people ignore the fact that you know you talked about field animals being killed, but I mean, and then they'll say this is all incidental or by kill, but I mean. They spray pesticides on this crop. They don't do that unintentionally. Pesticide, the very word itself means kill kill something, right? Homicide, yep. pesticide. You are intentionally killing things, whether they're bugs or small animals. There are farmers that pay people to shoot pest animals, whether it's kangaroos or rabbits or deer or whatever. Those animals are killed intentionally. And so these yes. people that are just putting their blinders on and saying, no, you know, no here, no see type yeah. of stuff. I mean, that that's... It's really disingenuous. So if you really wanted to do the least harm from an ethical standpoint, then you would just go find a regenerative agriculture person. There's a lot of people out there. I've got a list on my website and buy it directly from them. You would kill, you know, one or two animals a year instead of you know, likely hundreds and even thousands for your diet, even if you're on a vegan diet. You know, unless you yeah. maybe unless you move out of Costa Rica and you pick your own fruit and you become a fruitarian, maybe that's questionably <laughs> less harm. But even then, you know, a lot of fruit harvesting has animals that are killed, you know, because uh, again, it's, it's habitat destruction. I mean, this is a thing that field, even though those animals are killed in the field, just creating that field, you've already created a dead zone. You've already killed millions and millions of of different animals just to, just to have that monocrop or even not monocrop, even to have that crop exist. And so that's, you know, the, the common argument was the animals eat all the, all the crops anyway. That's also completely wrong. I mean, even if we you know, the data does show is FAO data says about a third of crops, cereal crops in particular, go to animals. But that means two thirds are going to humans. And then all the other crops, the fruits, the vegetables, you know, they're not eating that. I mean, they might, they might be eating the waste products. Remember, most of the animals, animal feed, uh, only about 10 to 14 percent of their, their food, if they're fed on finished on grain, is actually edible by humans. Ninety percent of the food humans cannot eat. Mm-hmm. And much of it is grass and forage. Some of it is like byproducts from, you know, human food. Again, you know, all this, mm-hmm. all this food that we make for humans, the, the, the waste products will go in a landfill and rotten and produce methane, or they, they get fed to, to a pig or a cow or a chicken. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's much more complicated and nuanced than people have you believe.
2: Yeah. Well, and the food waste is a big one because I mean, I think it's like the number is staggering. I don't know what it is, but we waste a large percentage of the food in this country. Right. And most of that food, guess what? It's not animal products that we're wasting. People are throwing away apples that go bad or bananas or whatever, or or greens. And very rarely are people throwing away meat or fish or anything like that. Right. So like if you account for how much actual plant products we're throwing away, which then contributes to other factors. I mean, again, it's just one of those data points. Like it's just, it's just absurd when you really dig into the numbers.
0: So yeah, I mean, we, we waste about 40% of the food that's produced in the yep, U.S. Yeah, I knew it was and that, big. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's, and so that's shocking. And about 50% of the fruit we get in the U.S. is imported from overseas. Mm. Um, you know, the vast majority of that food is wasted, you're right, is fruits, vegetables, and, and and baked goods and things like that. So that's, you know, bread that's gone bad, fruits and vegetables. Are right. I did this, you know, when I was on whatever diet, trying to eat, you know, healthy fruits and vegetables. Go get the organic fruits and vegetables and throw half of them in the trash. Yeah, you know, it's yep. just, just what happens because you don't get to eat it. In time, um, You know, and, you know, again, when we look at environmental issues and, and, you know, there's a lot of ways, a lot of ways to frame this, you know, what sort of vegan advocates will do is they'll, they'll say it's all about calories and it's all about greenhouse gases, you know, so we can say, well, maybe we should look at actual nutrition, not just calories, because the most nutritious, sorry, the most calorically efficient crop to grow is actually sugar. If you wanted to feed people the most sugar to get the most calories. you'd feed everybody sugar because that would be that would require the least input. And then if we look at health outcomes and if we look at what is causing greenhouse gases, well, we know, according to the EPA, and I'm talking about the United States, um, we see that only, you know, agriculture accounts for about nine percent of our greenhouse gases. Transportation, uh, industry and energy are about 80 80 percent of our greenhouse gases. Mm. The agriculture is 9%, plant agriculture is 5%, animal agriculture is 4%, cows are 2%. So 2% of our greenhouse gases are coming from cattle production. The healthcare sector creates 10% of our greenhouse gases. And so what I'm seeing, you know, 10% is bigger than 2%. And I'm seeing people that go on a meat-based diet and they leave the healthcare sector because they're no longer on pills. So we have to say big picture, do I contribute to 10% or 2%? And yep. I think that that's a pretty good way, another way to look at these things. So, you know, it's, it's whoever frames the argument. They they say, well, this is a metric we're going to follow, and therefore our argument's right. But when we say, well, let's measure a few other things, yeah, and see what what actually shakes out, because there's a lot of things that go into this. And so we're trying to oversimplify things because we have a message we want to we want to get behind an and agenda, really, a, a bias, an and agenda. The, yep. It is an agenda, and you know, this is sort of sort of this plant based movement, this vegan movement you know vegan, veganism has been around defined since 1944 and it's really kind of stayed there at this 1% 2% of the population but now we see these you know these people like silicon valley investors saying hey wait a minute we've got this market for alternative protein we think it's going to be a 100 billion dollar market and we've got something like 5 5.7 $5. trillion dollars in investment capital to help build this market and so we're seeing this incredible push for Beyond Meat, for Impossible Burgers, for yep. whatever Tyson food is going to call theirs, whatever Cargill or Nestle are going to call theirs. And this is why we're seeing the media constantly this push, give up meat, give up meat, give up meat, you know, protect the environment so you can eat our our hum- our, our very cheap, highly processed human pet food. And, and, and this is what we're seeing. And I mean, yep. it's simple as that. And, and people are, you know, unfortunately, people are not very sophisticated and they're easily swayed by Beyonce, you know, and, and, and you know, whoever, some latest yep. athlete Snoop Dogg saying eat, eat, eat Beyond Meat burgers. I mean, this is this is what we're dealing with. And they know it. They know how to market very effectively. Even These people have been marketing for 100 years. They know how to market yeah. kids. They know how to market market to the target audience. And it's just the same old playbook. And we're going to see a generation of people that don't know what it's like to be healthy. They're going yep. to they're going to be you eating their process, you know their process, you know processed kibble and taking their supplements and and then taking their anxiety pills and their erection pills and their psoriasis pills and you name it. And, and this is this is what is going to make a lot of people a lot of money. Unfortunately, it's 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 at the expense of you know everyone's health.
2: Yes, I know. That's why I do what I do. I want to try to help change it for my son's future because. Things are looking bleak. They really are. In fact, I think the the numbers are in where my son's generation is supposed to be the first human generation to ever not outlive the parents, which is like, wow, that's, that's pretty startling. Uh, but we are coming up on the hour, and we, we want to let you get back to your day of cooking ri- two ribeyes for breakfast, and maybe
1: two or three for yeah. dinner. <laughs> I want two for breakfast. That uh, Sounds amazing.
2: I've already fa- I'm am fa- fasting today, but I actually have a ribeye from Alder Spring Ranch. which Was a regenerative agriculture. I just just got a box in today. Actually, I'm really excited to get into. But right, would- you're
1: gonna cook it for us tomorrow.
2: Well, I may, I'll save one for you tomorrow, but I'd like to kind of hoard those for myself. The rib eyes <laughs> are for me, but what is some just parting kind of simple summary? Like if someone's maybe they're on the fence or, or they're going to try it out, maybe try it as an elimination diet for 30 days or whatever to really fine tune their body, which I think is a great way to do it. What are some simple ways to just simplify all of this? Cause there's a lot here, right? What would you recommend for just the average person? Maybe want to try this out.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think in the beginning, you know, I get away from the mindset of counting calories or macros or restricting, and and I don't care what your goal is. I think in the beginning when I tell people, and we have this huge coaching platform at meetrx.com, and it's a great source of of just information. Most of it's free if you want to get a coach that's fun. You know, my book's out there that talks about this. But I really talk about changing a relationship with food. I don't care what diets you're on. Long-term success comes when you have a healthy relationship when you treat food as nutrition and not as entertainment not as a social concession not as eating because you're bored or upset or or depressed or because you're watching tv you learn to do that and when you take in high quality nutrition whether it's ribeye steaks or liver or whatever and you eat that consistently over a period of time you get a physiologic shift that makes you not hungry and then once that is in place and you do that repeatedly, then you can battle those psychological demons. It becomes easier. You know, when you're hungry, it is impossible for the long haul to resist this psychology, this social pressure. When your physiology is favorable, that pressure becomes less. It's not that it goes away, but it becomes less, less difficult to resist. And I think that's where you get to. And so I tell people in the beginning, don't count calories, count how many meals you enjoyed you know, don't worry about making some macronutrient, make it so it's delicious, you know, enjoy it, be decadent, you know, in the beginning, if you want some spice on your food, fine, if you want some cheese on your food, fine, mix it up, eat chicken, eat eggs, eat pork, eat, you know, eat ribeye steaks, eat whatever, you know, eat octopus, whatever fish, whatever you like, Uh, and then you'll find, you know, eat that bacon cheeseburger, you know, without the bun, of course, but, but then, you you know, then you find out after you've kind of, Kind of got used to that and then you'll fine-tune it, and you'll find it maybe maybe i need to cut back on the dairy a little bit you know and, and you know maybe maybe this thats too much of this spice has caused my stomach to be upset a little bit you'll you'll figure that out but you know and, and you know don't worry about being perfect uh and just kind of get there make meat the majority of your, your nutrition get all your nutritional needs met through meat uh or meat product you know meat when i say meat i mean fish and dairy and eggs and yeah. all that stuff get your nutritional needs met there. And then the other stuff becomes flavoring. It really is. I I consider vegetables and and spices as decoration flavoring. I don't consider it nutrition. I don't think you're going to get some magical super berry that's going to give you some, you know, there's a hormetic effect of vegetables. You can get that same hormetic effect without the potential toxicity by exercising, by fasting, by sitting in a sauna, by cold exposure. I mean, so there's all these other ways to get those, theoretical hormetic benefits which are probably the only benefits of vegetables uh you can get them without that and you don't have to eat broccoli to do it you know so i mean it's and, you know i don't like broccoli maybe you guys do. But, <laughs> only, you know, only
2: if it's got a lot of butter and right, salt. It, and maybe yeah, cheese it, on it maybe cheese right, on it then it's good
0: right if you smother it in animal fats then it's palatable. Right. Like right so that <laughs> yeah. that would be my uh, you know sort of parting advice don't make it complicated don't stress out it your diet should not provoke anxiety if you need an app to figure out how to eat if you need a nutrient calorie balancer to eat. You're the only species on the planet that needs that. I mean, mm-hmm. you think about it. There's no other, there's no other animal on the planet that needs this stuff. And I try to keep it simple, simplify rather than, than, than make it more complex. Your life will be easier. You'll have more time for pleasure. I truly get a lot of pleasure out of eating, but it doesn't dominate my life. I don't spend, you know, hours a day planning and thinking and preparing and right. shopping. I just, man, what do I want? One or two steaks. You know, maybe I want some eggs today. And I mean, it, it's as simple as that. And that's, I think that makes sense.
2: Yeah, that's, I've actually noticed that too, to, to coincide with what you said, my sugar craving like monster was always pretty bad. And I've been eating, the more eat meat I've been eating lately, uh, particularly the more steaks and the more fatty cuts, I just like don't crave it anymore and I've been weaning off more and more to the point where like I think I finally killed it right I finally killed that sugar monster inside me and it's really been primarily steak that's allowed me to do that and again I but I love it I love the I love the food I'm eating like I literally I'm searing it I'm putting my salt on like I let it rest I slice it it's got that nice medium rare it's it's a freaking experience every time I I eat now you know so
0: yeah you get you kind of have fun making these steaks you know it's like you just kind of like it. it is it's an experience and you're just trying yep. to you enjoy that but i mean and at the same time i tell people you know don't think of this as a license don't think you'll never in the rest of your life have a bite of chocolate because i don't think right. that makes sense either and i think you'll get once you get this once you get that sugar monster tamed and you change that relationship yeah maybe you can have a piece here and there right and it's not gonna it's not gonna derail you for months i mean you know and so if you just kind of put it back in there and just kind of put it in perspective. Remember these desserts, these birthday parties that people would have 200 years ago were rare events. I mean, now it's every day is a birthday party, right? Right. We're eating eating, uh, dessert for breakfast. And I mean, it's nonstop, you know, celebration garbage. And and if we get away from that and make it a rare event and then make 95% of our nutrition healthy and good, then I think for most people, that's going to be a really good place to be.
2: Yep. Well, we really appreciate you coming on the show. All the links to meet our extra book, coaching program, and anything else you want us to include will be in the show notes. And if somebody wants to follow you on the socials, where can they find you?
0: Yeah, so I've got a fairly active Instagram account. It's Sean SHAWN Baker BAKER 1967. I kinda have a variety of stuff in there. Some people don't like some of the stuff I put up there, some people do. It's kinda of, <laughs> try right. you can't please everybody about everything. Some of it's I didn't
1: of, get to my vegan troll question. I wanted to ask you Okay, it go a on, right one, one last fine. question. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. That's fine. I remember one of the last guests we had on the show, they a bunch of vegans showed up and stole a goat from her farm.
0: Yep. that was. Oh, so yeah, yeah. I was just
1: wondering if you had any like vegan troll activists that came after you and if you had any great stories about
0: that. No, I can't say, I mean, you know, I, I'm getting, I guess, well enough out there that some people recognize me when I, when I got it. almost every time someone's come up to me, it's been, you know, Hey, I appreciate what you're doing. I'm, you know, yeah. I'm carnivore. I try carnivore. I am Absolutely convinced that there are vegans out there who have seen me. I've been in restaurant, you know, Whole Foods and stuff like that. I get sideways looks every once in a while, by you know, huh. and I get so. But they've never come up and said anything. Maybe the fact that I'm six. Well, you're five, six seven two, or six yeah, five, yeah, right? I'm like six, so. five, 240 <laughs> pounds, and I haven't been harassed by that. And I don't have any goats for them to steal or anything like that. But I'm, I'm aware of that goat. Goat incident is quite sad. But yeah, I That's haven't. I mean, most funny. of it's online. You know, it's it's kind of yeah. Know, people get a lot of. Uh, You know, they get a lot more bravado when they're online than they probably do in person. Keyboard warriors, yep. Right.
1: Please always remember that the members of the Ancestral Mind podcast are not, in fact, medical professionals. They're not doctors. They're not nutritionists. They are simply providing this entertainment for you to do your own research and to entertain yourselves. So please consult a physician before changing your diet. Not everything works for everybody. And make sure you always do your own research on everything you hear on this show and outside.
2: Thanks for listening to that show. Colin here, the Wild CEO. And I want you, if you haven't already, to go over to the AncestralMind.com and download the Seven Principles of Living Wild PDF. You're gonna hop on our Ancestral Mind newsletter. You're gonna get the monthly Ancestral Mind newsletter which is gonna be full of content that's actionable, short, sweet, nothing too much, not too big of an investment of your time. You're also gonna get every new show that we put out right in your inbox so you don't miss anything. You know, pick and choose if you can't listen to every show, listen to every other or the ones that really strike your fancy. We have a lot more coming out, a lot more planned. So make sure you get over there at theancestralmind.com. And as always, if you have any questions or comments, you can send an email to me personally, colin at wildfoods.co, that's C-O-L-I-N, at wildfoods.co, and I look forward to hearing from you. I will see you on the next episode. Today's show is brought to you by Wild Foods Co. Real food, real ingredients, from small suppliers around the world. Now, you've probably heard this ad before if you're a listener to the show, so instead of going into a broad view of the company, I wanna talk to you about one of my favorite products, and it'll give you a glimpse into the way we do things, why we source things, how we choose products, how we choose ingredients, etc. And so one of these products is actually a culmination of a few other products that we sell. For example, our wild cocoa pow- powder is the base, right? We also sell our wild turmeric powder. This is also in here. And so it's our wild, cocotropic, superfood cocoa drink mix. Now this product, you can drop in coffee, smoothies, shakes, you can even bake with it. It's a cocoa powder-based product that has raw maca powder, turmeric, and then it's got the medicinal mushrooms that are added in to get that nootropic boast of course, all of those uh, health benefits that you get from medicinal mushrooms. We have a chaga extract as well as a reishi mushroom extract. And so it's going to have mostly a cocoa flavor. And so you're not really going to taste the maca, the chaga or the mushroom. So it's a really convenient way to get those mushrooms into your diet on a daily basis without having to down any bitter powders or take a bunch of caps or anything. This is one of my favorite ways to do this. Uh, It's one of our best sellers. People love it. Some people will put the tropic right in a coffee and just blend it up. You can also, what I like to do, I add a little bit of grass-fed butter, some wild MCT oil, and then I add a tablespoon of tropic, and then I blend it up that way. And that just makes this delicious cocoa frothy mushroom beverage that, I mean, when you start waking up to that every morning, you just look forward to waking up for the day. It really is amazing. And so this is just one of the products that we offer that's based on whole food, raw food nutrition direct from nature, right, as close to nature as possible. We're taking premium, organic, in a lot of cases, ingredients, and and we're putting them together to make this functional beverage for you that's just easy to take a scoop and add it in any way you see fit. Uh, It's just a really great product. And so this is something that we have in our pantry at all times. It's a really, really great starter and intro to something like uh, butter coffee fasting or, or just having a little bit more functional nutrition in your smoothies or your shakes or your, or your post-workout or whatever. So go check that out over at wildfoods.co and check out some of our other premium products. You know, examples include our collagen, our plant protein, our MCT oil, our wild fish oil, which is one of our best sellers. And you can learn more about all these products on the website, wildfoods.co. And so when you're ready to make a buying decision and get your first wild box, use code AMpodcast12 for 12% off your entire order.